Hello, dear Forge listeners. Good to be back with you. We are going to be in the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. There are four gospels, the first four books of the New Testament. Now, when we say gospel, we mean that the theme of these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is the birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, we're going to jump right into the book of Matthew chapter 1, but I am going to attempt to do something a little bit different here. I'm going to take larger chunks of the book of Matthew, um, not like we've done in previous episodes where I've taken some time and gone slowly through calling out um, many of what I would call the finer details. I'm going to try a new approach with the book of Matthew here and take several chapters at a time. So we're going to take large chunks and um, hopefully we'll get through the book of Matthew uh, fast, um, but not too fast, if you know what I mean. So we're going to take a good pace, but we are going to hit some highlights along the way and keep it moving in an attempt to kind of speed up the process here so that hopefully before I am dead and gone, <laughs> we'll get through the entire book of Matthew or the entire uh, Bible, I should say, not just Matthew, but the whole Bible. That's the goal here. So with that said, let's jump right in to Matthew chapter one, Matthew chapter one. And here is what the word of the Lord says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Solomon. Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, Abijah begot Asa, Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, Joram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah, Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Amon, Amon begot Josiah, Josiah begot Jeconiah, and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Sheltiel, and Sheltiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abud. Abud begot Elakim. Elakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok. Zadok begot Achim. Achim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eleazar. Eleazar begot Matt. And Mathen begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the captivity in 
Babylon are 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you, Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, friends, it is my hope to cover four chapters in Matthew in this single episode. So let's get started with some comments here on Matthew chapter 1. Matthew is also called Levi. So if you are ever reading in the other Gospels and you read the name Levi, Levi and Matthew are the same person. He traces Jesus all the way back to Abraham, you'll notice there. And this is important because the Savior must be able to show that he was from the seed of Abraham. Look in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, Acts chapter 3, verses 25 through 26. Also, the Savior was to come from the branch of Jesse. That would be King David's line, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. And there's a lot more to be said about the stump of Jesse and the Davidic king, the Messiah. In short, it comes down to this. God tells us that the Davidic kingdom will never end. All others will, but David's kingdom will never end. And you can see that in Isaiah chapter 10, 33 through 34. There was a prophet. His name was Isaiah. This is a fulfillment of his prediction. You see, Jesus has to show that he comes from the Davidic line. Therefore, the Davidic kingdom will never end making the prophet a true prophet of the living God. Joseph is traced through chapter 1, verse 17, and you will notice that he is called the husband of Mary, not the father of Jesus. That's important. Joseph was from David's line, but it also includes Jeconiah. Now, I know I went through those names fast. There were a couple of them where I had to pause and think about what I was saying. I would challenge anyone to go through that list. Those are foreign names to most English speakers. So bear with me if I didn't get it exactly right. I encourage you to go give it a shot. <laughs> but the Lord had cursed this particular king, Jeconiah, uh, king of Judah, through the prophet Jeremiah, and Solomon's line was disallowed to have the throne. 
And you can find that in the prophet Jeremiah 22, verses 24 through 30. So we look at Mary's line. Mary's line comes from Nathan. And you can see how God puts it all together in Luke chapter 4. I do want you to take a look at four different people here that are in the line of uh, Jesus through Joseph. First of all, Genesis chapter 38, we find this person named Tamar. Remember, Tamar tricked Judah, her father-in-law. She tricked him into having um, uh, relations with her, and uh, through her, Judah fathered the twins, Perez and Zerah. Perez is in King David's line, and thus he is also in Jesus' line. I encourage you to go back and take a look at uh, the uh, episodes that we did in the book of Genesis. Pay particular attention when we get to Genesis chapter 38. Tamar being outside of the chosen nation of Israel comes into the household of God. Up next, we have Josiah. I'm sorry, not Josiah, Joshua, Joshua chapter two. Rahab, this woman named Rahab is on the scene. She was a prostitute and she hid the Israelites who spied out the land in Jericho. Rahab is in the line of our Savior. She is the mother of Boaz. Boaz is the father of Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. Are you seeing a trend here? We have two women now, not in the nation of Israel, yet they are brought into the nation of Israel. They fear the God of Israel. They want the blessings of God that God has poured out upon his people. Rahab was a prostitute. Tamar pretended to be one and had an affair really with her father-in-law. Ruth chapter 1 verses 16 through 17, we find this woman named Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. She was not an Israelite. And as a Moabite, she could not come into the temple. Ruth does not stay in Moab, but she follows her mother-in-law. And I want you to notice this here again. We've got a third woman who is not a Jew. And you need to understand that the Jews hated the Moabites. Yet Ruth converts to Judaism. She tells her mother-in-law, I want your God to be my God. I am going to follow the God of Israel. And then we have Bathsheba. Bathsheba, David stole her from another man. King David, King David, the one who God says, this is a man after my own heart. This is the one where the kingdom will come through his line and it will never, ever fade away like all the other kingdoms. This same David sends Uriah the Hittite, who is the husband of Bathsheba. King David sends Uriah to the front lines after he has had an affair with Bathsheba. So I want you to get this 
The soldier is off fighting the war. The king is back in his palace having an affair with one of his general's wife. And she becomes Solomon's mother through David. It was Solomon who succeeded David as king. Isn't that interesting? And I want you to think about this now for a second. David is responsible for the murder of Uriah so that he can take Bathsheba as his own wife. Friends, what am I pointing out to you? I'm pointing out to you four, at least four. <laughs> There's more than four in these stories, but there are at least four individuals here in the line of Jesus, and they are not perfect. They do some of the most, what we would, might even think of as the most unthinkable sins. They are guilty, absolutely 100% guilty, yet they are in the line of the Messiah. What is important to notice about all these things is that God uses less than perfect people for his good. If you're waiting so that you can be perfect, so that God can use you, friends, you will never be perfect and you'll be waiting an awfully long time. You see, God has a plan and he can use you even if you've made mistakes. His plan's going forward, friends. There's three relationships that I want to talk about that happened between um, couples in ancient times. What we think of as engagement can actually be broken down into three separate relationships. Here in the West, we just say, well, it's an engagement. Well, back in those days, Mary and Joseph would have been a couple in these ancient times, and their engagement consisted of three parts. First is what we would call the engagement. The engagement could happen at any age. Why do I say that? Why? Because the marriage was arranged by the parents of the husband and the parents of the wife. In other words, it could even happen before you are born, your parents enter into a covenant with the other parents. And they say, when we have a son or we have a daughter, they will marry one of your sons or one of your daughters. The second step was the espousal. It was a one-year period where they accept the arrangement of the parents. Now, to break up at this time would actually require a writ of divorcement. So, in other words, children, you need to obey your parents in this. Trust your parents. They've entered into a covenant with each other. You guys need to accept it. Now, obviously, there are cases where that didn't happen, but it required a writ of divorcement. That's how serious this covenant was. And then the third step in this engagement process was the betrothal, the actual marriage. The wife would be able to prove that she had kept her end of the contract. And I'm not going to go into a lot of details about that. You can read all of that in the Levitical law. You can read that in the Old Covenant if you'd like to, and I encourage you to do that. 
Now, this seems strange to us in the West, because in the West, we're told quite the opposite. Number one, mom, dad, you're not going to choose who marries me. I'm, I get to make my own choices, and I'm going to go play the field. I'm going to go see what things are all about out there in the world. I've heard people say things like, well, you wouldn't buy a car without testing it out. How stupid. How absolutely lawless. That's just, it doesn't even make sense because I'm not talking about purchasing a car. People say, oh, well, you wouldn't buy clothes without trying them on. Wrong. <laughs> Especially in today's world, you can go out on the internet and buy clothes all day without trying them on. But the point is, is that the marriage covenant is not like purchasing a car or buying some clothes. I want you to look at the advantages to this method of finding a husband or finding a wife. And this is still practiced in some parts of the world today. Number one, there's no baggage that you bring in from a previous relationship. Why? Because this is the only relationship you're going to have. You don't have emotional problems. You don't have uh, sexually transmitted diseases. You don't have so-called unwanted pregnancy. There's no need to shop around because your parents are in agreement with the other parents. In other words, think about this. You've got in-laws that actually know each other and get along with each other. They agree that they are going to become family. The role of the husband and the role of the wife is clearly defined. And I want you to remember that our very first parents, Adam and Eve, were in an arranged marriage. I want you to think about this. What are you saying, James? Are you saying we should go back to the way it was in ancient times? I'm not going to say one way or another. I'm going to let you read the scriptures and come to your own conclusion. Friends, we live in a fallen world. I'm not, um, I don't have my head buried in the sand. I understand what's going on around me. I understand I don't live in an ancient culture. I'm just pointing out to you that God's way is better than man's way. All right? God's way is better than man's way. Does God still bless marriages today? Absolutely. But don't mistake that as his approval for the way that we got there. What you should see in your marriage when God is blessing is that he is blessing it in spite of what you have done, not because of what you have done. So moving on, according to the law, Joseph could have had Mary stoned. Why? Because she shows up pregnant. But the Bible tells us here that Joseph did not have her stoned. He had, uh, according to this law that I just laid out for you, he could have written her a certificate of divorcement and said, I'm not doing this. Um, she has not kept her end of the covenant. So he didn't do that. Why? Because the angel of the Lord appears to him. And it's important to note that not only was Mary in touch with God, but that Joseph was also in touch with God. Jesus' name literally means Yahweh, God, 
is salvation. Yahshua, it actually is what we would say, Joshua. God is salvation. In Hebrew, there's no Jah sound, so there really is no Jesus. In Hebrew, there's no Jacob or uh, Joshua. It is Yahshua. Yahshua, that is Jesus' name. In Hebrew, it means God. Yahweh is salvation. I want you to also notice that Joseph was a good man. He didn't want to see Mary stoned even before he knew what was going on. He was going to divorce her as quietly as possible. The Bible tells us here that he didn't want to make an example out of her. Joseph was obviously a man which God was going to use. God sent the angel with instructions of what to do. Joseph did not know Mary, the Bible says. No, simply another word for having the normal marital relations that a husband and wife have. And there's a word here, till, in, in my translation, my English translation. He did not know her until she brought forth her first son. What does that mean? That means eventually it did happen, okay? The idea that Mary remained a virgin for her entire life, as the Church of Rome would teach us, um, that's not based in Scripture. It's nowhere in the Scriptures. And further, we're going to find out later that Jesus, his brothers and sisters are mentioned. So when the traditions of a so-called church or the traditions of men are taught, then we have to explain away what scripture so clearly states. Some modern translations even call Mary a young maiden, and it's true, she was a young maiden, but the term does not describe her as she really was. She was a virgin. So these translators always seem to I won't say always. I will say there are some translators who, because of liberal influences in their own heart, in their own mind, oftentimes there are people who want to attack the virgin birth of Christ. But I want you to take a look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, 27, 56, Mark 3, 31, Mark 6, 3, Mark 15, 40, Mark 16, 1, John 2, 12, Acts 1, 14, Galatians 1, 19, and there are more which tell us of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. This is important, friends. Why is it important? Because he is not the son in, of Adam like you and I are the children of Adam. He is the second Adam. Moving on to Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judah, 
For thus it is written, but you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over the young child, where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child and Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and sent forth to put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Friends, there's so much here, and it's so deep, and it's so meaningful. You see, Jesus' birth fulfills the prophet's predictions. Friends, I want you to think about that. I want you to meditate on that. You see, there's a Jewish flavor to the book of Matthew. Matthew continually throughout this entire book 
He points back to the fulfillment of prophecies, not just one or two. It is laced throughout the book of Matthew, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. And Matthew will say, this fulfills this prophecy. This fulfills this prophecy. And on he goes. Now, there were wise men, and there is no proof, as we often see portrayed in pictures and paintings, and every Christmas you see it out in the decorations, there is no proof that there were only three, nor is there proof that they were kings, they were wise men, or they were magi, which is the Persian word for men who studied. These were professors in today's uh, Western world. These would be the ones advising the king and teaching young people. They would be probably, in many cases, in the king's court. They had enough knowledge of Old Testament prophecies to know that this was the time for the king of Israel to be born. Now, there's no proof about what I'm about to say. This is my opinion. I think it's a reasonable opinion. Perhaps these men had learned from the descendants of Daniel and other Hebrews which were taken into Babylon. And some believe that the heavens tell the gospel story and that even Adam knew the plan of redemption because it was foretold in the sky. And what we see now as a perverted zodiac in astrology did at one time, and if this is true, it still does, it has a pure meaning and it was perverted over time by false worship and pagan practices. Now, again, I don't really know if that's true. I tend to believe that uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. To what extent that goes, I'm not going, this is not a mountain that I'm going to die on. I just think it's very interesting. We have um, scales, meaning justice, even in the perverted astrology. You have uh, fish, and I think of Jesus calling his first disciples who were fishermen. And he says, come with me and I will make you fishers of men. The entire zodiac uh, in pagan astrology is surrounded by a serpent. There is Virgo, the virgin. Well, where did that come from? We have just been talking about the Virgin Mary. And on it goes. There is a lion, uh, Leo the lion in pagan astrology. Uh, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. I do not believe for one second that these things are in the heavens by accident. And we could go on and on about it. I recommend um, a great uh, documentary um, called The Bethlehem Star. It is um, a story of an amateur astronomer who uh, put some pretty amazing stuff together concerning the time of Jesus birth and what was actually factually happening in the night sky as seen from uh, modern day Iran, which is where the Magi came from. So I encourage you, go get that video. You could probably find it out on Amazon, on the internet or something like that. It's called The Bethlehem Star. It is a pretty fascinating video of what this 
guide stumbled across as he began to study the night sky. And it's just amazing uh, with the software that's available with computers now uh, that can be somehow attached to um, a telescope. I'm not an astronomer. I don't understand all these things. I'm not going to pretend that I do. But um, they have been able to demonstrate what the night sky would look like from any hemisphere on the globe at any time. So you could literally punch in a day, a time, a date, a year, what part of the hemisphere that you want to look at, and you would see what the sky would look like at night on that particular day. It's fascinating what he discovered. So that said, hopefully that got you interested a little bit and you might want to take a look at that uh, uh, video. These things are interesting to me. These things are fun, but I need for you to know as you're listening to this, the truth is in scripture. That's what I base my true beliefs on. When I find out these other things, I find them interesting but it's not going to be a deal breaker for me one way or another. And we just need to be careful when we look at these things. Don't, like I said, this is not a mountain that I'm going to die on, but it does make you wonder if you are a thinking human being and you look at these things and you evaluate the facts, it's kind of interesting. So there you go. The Bible states that Jesus had a star to show these magi the way. I believe that um, it was the planet Jupiter, which also happens to be the king star or planet in the night sky in the ancient world. And there were also fascinating things happening in the sky that are based on retrograde motion and the computer programs uh, that this guy found in the star of Bethlehem. Uh, so find it and um, it's, it's just a fascinating, it's a fascinating study of what's going on in the sky. And it is also a fascinating study what happened in the night sky, uh, when Christ was crucified upon the cross. So why would three pagan magi be coming to worship Jesus, Yeshua, this Jewish king? Well, Jesus came even for the Gentiles, thank God. And that's also something that I wanted you to notice in chapter one, the number of Gentile women that are in the line of Jesus. Um, it is about the Gentiles. It is not only about Israel. In fact, if you go back and take a look at or listen to uh, our study in Galatians, you're going to hear my comments on the Israel of God being the church. And so uh, we see that people are coming in from all nations into the household of God brought there by the sacrifice of Christ. So let's take a look at these gifts that pagan magi uh, uh, brought to Jesus. I personally believe that it was an entire train of merchants because they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Those things are valuable. You would have to have had uh, at least a guard staff to keep those things. Um, it wasn't just three guys with three camels going through the desert. I think that it was uh, quite the entourage, if you just think about it. Gold 
It's a gift for a king. Gold is associated with royalty. It is a gift only at this time in history for royalty. Frankincense. Ancient cultures burned this thinking that it carried their prayers to heaven. This would be fitting coming from pagans from the Middle East, uh, people outside the nation of Israel. It was thought to have a calming effect on people. I believe it still has a calming effect on people. If you know anyone who is into uh, holistic medicine and natural oils and things, frankincense is part of that. It has a calming smell to it. There's an aroma that goes with it. Many believe that this shows that the Magi were recognizing Jesus' role as priest. If you want to pray to someone, pray to Jesus. In other words, myrrh was used by ancient cultures to treat wounds, cuts, and bruises. Um, it is the Arabic word for bitter, myrrh. Uh, this gift speaks of Jesus' death and his wounds. Egyptians used it in mummies, and it was one of Jesus' burial spices, as we see in John chapter 19, verse 39. Again, uh, three very known common uh, uh, elements in the ancient world. Many people believe that the gold that was received at this time was used to help finance the trip that Joseph was going to be taking out of Egypt. Herod the Great uh, was in power. He was a little over four feet tall. Um, <laughs> if you've ever heard of Napoleon Syndrome, I actually think it probably goes back to uh, Herod the Great. He built this colossal building, uh, all kinds of buildings, but he built what's known as Herod's Temple. Uh, he built fortresses, uh, Masada. He, he built water systems. He was very cruel and he was paranoid. He killed his wife. He killed his sons. He gave orders that upon his death that all of his top officials should be killed. The order was not followed. <laughs> what could he do about it? He was dead. And it just shows the silliness, uh, the stupidness of the pagan mindset. Uh, he also orders that all male babies under two years old are killed, and we are they are to be killed. And he was afraid of this new king of Israel that was coming. He was considered to be the king of the Jews by the Roman Empire. Now, this is interesting. Herod is the last known Edomite recorded in Scripture. Now, why is that a big deal? Go back to Genesis 36, verse 1. Edomite. The Edomites were enemies of Israel. Who was the father of the Edomites and why does it matter? Well, if you remember from Genesis, Esau, Jacob's brother, it matters because of this little thing called the birthright, remember? And how Jacob tricked his brother out of the birthright. It matters because the descendants of Esau fight the descendants of Jacob throughout all of history. Jacob is Israel. 
And it's only fitting that the last known Edomite in all of scripture comes after the king of the Jews to try to kill him as a baby boy. The fact that he goes from the age of two down lets us know also another false conception that we have. When you see the Magi in the major scene at Christmas time and they're coming in to see Jesus in the manger, that is probably not how it happened. They saw the sign in the sky. It took some time to get the entourage together. They had a long journey ahead of them if they came from Babylon, uh, which is Baghdad of today. That's where I believe they came from. And they had a long trip to go. And by the time they got there, Jesus was not an infant any longer. And just to be sure, King Herod says, I want everybody from age two and under all the male children from two and under killed. Again, going back to Matthew, he continues to point out the, to the reader the places where Jesus fulfills prophecy. He does it. Again, I'm mentioning this because it comes from a Jewish point of view. Chapter 2, verse 6, look at Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. Matthew, chapter 2, verse 15, look at Hosea, 11, 1. Uh, Matthew, chapter 2, 18, look at Jeremiah, 31, 15. I've talked about that one before in previous episodes where we see Rachel weeping for her children and it is fulfilled. So, uh, Matthew chapter 2 again, verse 23, there is a prophecy that's mentioned here, and um, you won't find it in the Bible. It's not in the Bible, but there's this prophecy that is mentioned here by Matthew, and this is one of those so-called quote-unquote Bible contradictions that I love because atheists and agnostics and skeptics they love this kind of stuff and they like to bring it up to you christians because they think you never thought of it and they think like they've got you now you know and it's just so silly um i have talked with many skeptics i've talked with many non-believers and i've asked them do you honestly believe that you're going to come up with a question that i or someone else hasn't already puzzled through it because they had their own concerns. You know, it's just, it's, it is what it is. A, a skeptic is going to be a skeptic. So um, here's the, an explanation for that. Uh, Matthew chapter two, verse 20, uh, chapter two, verse 23. It's not, uh, it's a, it is a uh, prophecy, but it's not in the Bible. It concerns calling Jesus a Nazarene. Now, to call someone a Nazarene in those days, coming from a Jew, was a racial slur. So, in other words, it's not a compliment if you were to call somebody a Nazarene. The Jews used the term with bitterness and hatred in their heart. Even Jesus' followers were called Nazarites. You've even seen churches called the Church of the Nazarene. What the prophets were saying was that Jesus was going to be rejected, and you won't have any problem finding that in the prophets. Jesus would be rejected. He would be the lowest of the low. He would be despised. He would be hated. He would be rejected. To be called a Nazarene is saying, we reject you. 
Not much of a contradiction when you look at it that way. And it also fulfills Psalm 22.6, Isaiah 49.7, Isaiah 53.3, Daniel 9.26. Matthew expects his Jewish reader to know what it means to be called a Nazarene. Go study those prophets. They actually complement one another. And I've heard other skeptics say things like, well, they just waited for the prophecies to be fulfilled. And then they went back in and wrote it in so that it looks like the prophecy is fulfilled. Yeah, great story, except that we know the dates of the original manuscripts and what that charge is that basically they wrote it in after the fact. It doesn't stand up academically. It is impossible for that to have happened because we know without question within certain ballpark figures, we know when the documents were written. And a great study to look at is what was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we know when the Dead Sea Scrolls were written. And guess what? When you open your English Bible and you read Isaiah, you are reading accuracy. Matthew expects his reader to know uh, what it is to be looking at this from a Jewish perspective. Let's take a look at chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John of the Jordan to be baptized by him, and John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There are 28 to 29 years of silence 
from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3. And John the Baptist shows up. He is Jesus's cousin. John ate locusts and honey. It could be locust bean that they were talking about, but I believe it was locust the bug. I believe he had a source of protein and he had a source of sugar. The kingdom of heaven. You know what happens in the heavens? God rules in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, the Bible says. But it also means that God rules over mankind. So whenever we see this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, John is saying God is getting ready to deal with the human race. And it doesn't include animals. It doesn't include angels. He is going to deal with humans. I believe that the kingdom is now. Are there issues? Are there problems? Is there evil present? Absolutely, there is. But Jesus is winning. His church is winning. In fact, I would say the victory has already been won. Verse 1 and verse 2, it says, The kingdom is at hand. Friends, the person of the king, Jesus, is present. There's people that would say that we're not in the kingdom age right now. They would say things like we are in the church age. Uh, I'm not going to get into all of that today. I would encourage you to go back. And uh, I dropped an episode about the history of dispensationalism and uh, a brief history of where the rapture teaching came from and all of that. That is a false teaching. All of this left behind stuff and a pre-tribulation rapture and a great tribulation, all of these things, um, it is it is a lie. It's false teaching. Um, the kingdom is now. Jesus said um, that all authority had been given to him in heaven and on earth. I want to take a look at, in verse 7, where John the Baptist calls, calls these Jewish scholars of the day, he calls them vipers. Why does he call them vipers? Well, I want to talk to you about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were uh, very strict. Um, Pharisee means to be separate. They believed in the traditions of men. They believed in those traditions, um, and they overlaid the law with the traditions of men. They had a book of traditions that they held on to as equivalent to God's word. Sounds a lot like Roman Catholicism. We have our traditions. We're going to hold on to those over and above God's word. They had morals. They had zeal but they were also self-righteous. They actually led the persecution of Jesus. And you can understand why, because in Jesus' dealings with them, he denounced them. And time after time after time, when they tried to trap Jesus, he uh, would not be trapped by them. Then there were the Sadducees. Sadducees, and I always remember the Sadducees this way, they did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in angels or spirits. They did not believe in the resurrection. They were deniers of anything supernatural. And so they were sad, you see. <laughs> sad, you see. So you've got these two different groups of people, and uh, they are the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and John calls them vipers because they were non-believers in the supernatural and 
they were self-righteous and they had elevated tradition of men above the word of God. So why was Jesus baptized? He was baptized because he enters into his office here as priest, king, and prophet. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Getting baptized does not make you a Christian. However, if you've listened to other uh, episodes that I've dropped, um, you will know that I believe and teach that water baptism is a sign of the new covenant. It is a sign of the new covenant. Saying a prayer doesn't necessarily make you saved. I know that there are pastors and preachers who will say, just repeat these words after me. I will pray, and then you pray. Friends, I don't do that in my ministry. I don't believe in that. I believe that if you are coming to Christ, there is a conversation that you need to have with Christ. Now, I can take you to the water, but I cannot make you drink. I will preach you the gospel. I will point out to you that you need a Savior just like I need a Savior. But in the end, that is a conversation that you need to have. We see Jesus here is standing with a fan and cleaning the threshing floor. The chaff will be burned up. This is a concept that we don't really see today here in the West. But they would pick up the wheat. and They had, they had sort of like these rakes that they would pick it up. And they would allow the wind to blow away the chaff. And what would be left behind would be the good wheat. So which are you? Are you chaff? Or are you wheat? The chaff is going to get burned up. It's going to be blown away. But only what is left behind is true and good and useful. Are you going to be wheat or are you going to be chaff? And now moving on with Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written, again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. 
people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon and Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and tormented by those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from the capitalist Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Friends, as we look at chapter 4 here, I want to encourage you to know God's word and to follow him. You see, Jesus is, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, he is the last Adam. And to understand what that means, you've got to understand who the first Adam was and what he was given and what he was entitled to rule over. You see, God made Adam the ruler over God's creation in the Garden of Eden. And there was only one thing that was not given to Adam that he could have lordship over. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. There was more going on there than simple disobedience to God and eating fruit that God said you can't eat. You see, Adam was tempted to add to his own dominion. He wanted to create a kingdom bigger than what God had given him. And when he tried this, he fell, and in falling, he lost everything. And in Adam, and through Adam's sin, all of humanity is now born into sin. You see, Jesus came and completely obeyed God, the Father. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Son obeyed the Father. And thus came to redeem the fallen human race. And all of creation, which has been under a divine curse, according to Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, and Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 23, all of creation is under a curse. Jesus came to set us free. Adam literally means the man. Jesus means, Jesus referred to himself as, I should say, the Son of Man. Jesus said, I do always the things which please the Father. 
And so here in our last chapter for our uh, episode today, looking at verse 14, we see that Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting. Why is it significant? It's significant because at 40 days without food, the human body actually begins the process of death by starvation. And Jesus was hungry at this point. That is the point that I want to bring out. Why was Jesus going so long without food? I believe that fasting is a way that we can focus on the things of God the Father. I believe that's what Jesus was doing. You see, we're always overstimulated, especially in our culture. I want you to imagine cutting the distractions, turning the phone off, getting away from your laptop, getting away from the internet, no email, even cutting off other voices who would speak to you while you are trying to pray. And what other ways can you imagine how you are overstimulated? And then ask this question, how well can I hear the voice of God if I reduce the noise in my life? Something to think about, isn't it? Personally, I believe that we are incapable of processing all of the information that comes at us in today's world through media, through the internet, and various other means of stimulation. Astronauts in space, they have reported so-called spiritual experiences. Why? Well, I believe their senses are dulled while they are in space. You see, one of the things that happens is when we begin to fast, um, it actually cuts off our sense of taste. I don't know this, but perhaps we could hear better from God if we reduced this sense and its use, this, uh, the sense of smell, the sense of taste. And you know this from your own experience. If you've gone a long period of time and you haven't had a particular treat or a, or a food that you like, and then you reintroduce it into your diet, you think of how delicious it is. It's almost like you didn't notice it before because you got so used to it. You know, Jesus defeated Satan by quoting scripture. And that's another thing that I want to point out here. Satan comes against Jesus, and Jesus quotes scripture. You can find the scriptures that Jesus quoted in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, and Deuteronomy 6, 16. This is where Jesus tells Satan, God's word is life to our soul. He tells Satan that uh, we are not supposed to do something just to see what God's going to do. This is called tempting God while he promises to keep us safe. It doesn't mean that we go jumping off a cliff just to check it out and see if it's true. And, of course, Satan offers Jesus a shortcut. Do this. Do that. Worship me, and I'll give you back the dominion which was once Adams. 
How do we overcome the enemy? Friends, we overcome the enemy by the word of God. Learn it, know it, read it, memorize it, live in it. It is your power over the evil one. And I want you to notice every time that Jesus answers Satan with the scripture, Satan comes back with his twist on scripture. So friends, it's just something for us to consider here. No scripture. Make time to fast and pray. That is how you defeat the enemy in your own life. Verses 11 through 25, again, Matthew refers to the prophet's words coming to pass. We see this phrase again, kingdom of heaven. Who were the first four disciples? They were Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. This is verified also in the other gospels. Obedience to God is immediate and joyful. And I want you to notice that these four disciples obeyed God. They obeyed the voice of Jesus immediately and joyfully. You see, friends, anything less is not from the heart. When we obey God, we hear God's call in our life. We obey him immediately and joyfully. And I would even add, we obey him without complaint. We should be happy to do what he calls us to do. Would you leave your father and your mother for the call of God? That's what these disciples did. They left the family business to follow Christ. Andrew, according to tradition, he was crucified. Peter, according to tradition, I don't necessarily believe this. It's not in the word of God. It is tradition, so take it lightly here. But tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down. I don't know that I believe that. The only thing we know for sure, according to scriptures, that James was killed by King Agrippa, according to Acts chapter 12, Verses 1 and 2, the Bible tells us that James was killed by Herod Agrippa uh, with the sword. Probably a reference to him having his head chopped off or possibly even being stabbed to death with a sword. Friends, it's going to cost you something when you follow Christ. But I want to encourage you, like I said, know God's word and follow him. Understand that it's going to come with a cost, but in the end, it will be worth it. In the end, we should count it all joy when these things come our way. We should count it a privilege to share in the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, with that said, we have kind of uh, taken a fast approach to the first four chapters of Matthew this is something that I hope to continue all the way through the book of Matthew and kind of pick up the pace a little bit so that we can get through all 66 books of the Bible before I expire. <laughs> and I say that as a joke. Um, I It's something I want to do uh, before this life is over. I want the gospel of Jesus Christ to be heard around the world. Hope Hopefully, I've given you things here to think about, to talk about, to ponder, to study on your own. And may the Holy Spirit speak to your heart in ways that I cannot. 
as you contemplate and study the word of the one true living God.